Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. We are now in the Hebrew month of Adar, uh, which means that uh, in less than two weeks, we're going to celebrate the joyous holiday of Purim. So I want to say a few words about uh, Purim, particularly because there is a comment in Jewish thought that says, Mishenichnas Adar Marbim Besimcha. When we get into the month of Adar, we should increase happiness and joy. And of course, this is marked by um, the holiday of Purim. There are a lot of other Purims, which I'll get to in a moment. So we have to think about it. The, the holiday of Purim, the Purim story itself, is the quintessential diaspora Jewish experience with a happy ending. We read the book of Esther, we read the scroll. It's the only book in the Bible that stays entirely outside of the land of Israel. It is not a theological work. The names of the Jewish heroes and the evil Persian villains in the, Pur- in the Purim story are not Hebrew names. They are Persian names. Now they've been integrated into the Jewish lexicon of names, uh, names like Mordechai. And uh, interestingly enough, it's one of the few, if not the only book in the Bible, if I'm not mistaken, where the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. There's a plot to massacre all the Jews throughout the land in all of the 127 provinces. At the last minute, the Jews are saved. Not only are they saved, but here they have an added dimension. They kill off their plotters and take revenge against those who joined in the murder plot. Matter of fact, the Jews in the capital, Shushan, uh, even get a second day to seek out the plotters. And for good measure, the worst of the lot are hanged from the tallest tree. And uh, there are now two lavish feasts. Now, the Purim story is what is called by many the example par excellence of the joke that is told at some point during almost every Jewish holiday, which, when someone says, which are the 11 words that Jews say on every holiday? No, it's not a phrase from the Hallel, the prayer of praising God. The 11 words, and it's a joke, but we hear it all the time. The 11 words are, they try to kill us, they lost, we won, let's eat. So there is a very serious uh, uh, festive day. There's a big meal on Purim, which uh, invite uh, friends and neighbors and strangers. And incidentally, it's interesting. Uh, you uh, during the course of the year, one is required to give charity, but you can refuse to give charity to someone who feels is not deserving of it. That can happen, unfortunately. Interestingly enough, 
the law is that on Purim, anyone who comes to you uh, and asks for charity, you must give charity to that person without any conditions added. Even there are people who, during the course of the year, you wouldn't give charity if they asked for it. If they asked for it on Purim, you have to give it. Purim is a day of fest. It's a festival, a festive time, and no questions asked. It's a really wonderful time. Now, on a more serious note, this image of Jews being saved at the last minute has become a theme in Jewish history. This is pointed out by a gentleman named um, Mika Halpern, who's a social and political commentator. Uh, he notes that uh, for the simple reason that Jews are saved at the last minute, their families and communities scattered throughout the Jewish world who, on various and different days, gather to celebrate their own private Purim holiday. These celebrations are variously called Purim Katan, which means a mini Purim, or Purim Sheini, which is a second Purim, or Purim Prati, which means private Purim, or Purim Mishpachti, which means family Purim, or uh, city Purim, and community Purim. A Megillah, a scroll describing the events of the special Purim, was written by each family in each community, and every year each community or family would fast the day before the big day, just, there's a, just like there's a fast of Esther before the big Purim, and then they gathered together to read their own Megillah, followed, of course, by celebration and eating. For example, the cities of Hebron, Hebron and Tiberias in Israel and Cairo in Egypt have two city or community Purims each, two separate days when the Jews of that, their city were saved from being killed. In Cairo, for example, the ruler had proclaimed in 1524 that all Jews would be executed. But it, this it was supposed to be done after he took his bath. But during his bath, professional assassins came and killed him. And so the Jews were saved. The most famous of all the community Purims is the Vince Purim. What will happen in 1624, there was an uprising in the Frankfurt ghetto, known as the Jewish ghetto or the, or the Fettmilch, ghetto, Fettmilch ghetto. The local leader of Frankfurt named Vincent Fettmilch sponsored pogroms and raided the Judengasse, the Jewish street, and expelled the Jews. Now, Frankfurt Jews were saved by Mattathias, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He intervened, arrested Fertmilch and six of his henchmen, and executed them. So the Jews were saved. The Jews were allowed to return to their ghetto uh, homes. The ensuing celebration became known as Vince Purim, named after the notorious murderer of Jews, 
a name as reviled as in Frankfurt as Haman was for the Jews of Persia during the Purim story and for Jews throughout the year. More than a century later, in 1762, a gentleman named Hatam Sofer, known as Rabbi Moses Sofer, who hailed from Frankfurt, who returned to Frankfurt each year for Vince Purim after he became the rabbi of Pressburg. The Purim message has not been lost on Jew haters. Adolf Hitler understood the message, and that was why he banned Purim. Julius Streicher, the Nazi propagandist and publisher of Der Sturmer, delivered a speech on November 10, 1938, the day after Kristallnacht. In his speech, Streicher recalled that the Jews butchered 75,000 Persians in one night, as written in the book of Esther. So this terrible anti-Semite quoted the book of Esther. And then he went on to say that the same fate would have befallen the German people had the Jews succeeded in inciting a war against Germany from the inside. The Jews, he said, were now would have instituted a new Purim festival in Germany. Other historic Purim celebrations in Jewish history have occurred in Yemen, Italy, Vilna, and hundreds of other places, hundreds of families. Today, unfortunately, most are no longer commemorated. So Purim has deep significance in history, especially in diaspora. The so Purim has significance, and I have the same thing. Uh, one of my sons was uh, very badly wounded in the army, and uh, thank God he was saved. And we celebrate his saving in a special Purim that we make every year for him. The, uh, the, the, one of the books of Jewish law is called the Chaye Adam. It's a book of Jewish law that uh, was written several hundred years ago uh, by um, the uh, Avram Danzig, who was uh, the rabbi in Vilna. And in this book, which discusses laws, including the laws of holidays, he has, uh, under the laws of Pesach, he has the law, I'm sorry, under the laws of Purim, he has uh, uh, a rule that says, and I'm, I'm looking at it now in Hebrew and quoting it, it says, if someone has had a miracle uh, happen to him or to the people in his city, they can arrange uh, with the agreement of the leaders of the community to make that day a Purim for that city. The, and they make a, uh, a meal, a festive meal, that you do to honor the fact that you were saved. It is a sudat mitzvah. It's not just a, a meal, but it is a positive commandment to make the meal. So uh, you can have your own private Purim. Uh, I apologize to the listeners. Uh, something uh, got mixed up in uh, my recording here. So there's a, there's a few moments here which are a little bit... Uh, not part of the program, I apologize. At any rate, the bottom line of what I was saying up to now is that uh, 
the the big uh, Jewish Purim is coming in two weeks in the month Hebrew month of Adar. But there are many many Purims uh, which are celebrated by individuals and uh, communities because of miracles that happen to them. Now you know it's an odd thing to say what's a miracle if. Uh, if God forbid you're sick and you go to a very sick and you go to a hospital and you're well taken care of uh, by doctors who know their business, so you can ask yourself, well, is that a miracle? You know, that's why we uh, we educate uh, doctors and nurses to take care of us. So if they get us out of our problem, is that a miracle? And the answer is yes, because wherever you are, uh, you are always in need of some kind of help. Uh, as, and as I said a moment ago, uh, I, had, I have a private room because I, I had a sudden uh, a physical attack. Uh, I was rushed to the hospital. Uh, I was saved. As a matter of fact, uh, I have a pacemaker in my heart that was put in because of the incident that occurred. And as a result of this incident, I have my own private room, which I celebrate with my family. And again, as I said a moment ago, my son was badly wounded in the army, and we celebrate the fact that he came out alive, and he has his own private Purim. So there are many private Purims. The big national, I guess you can call it the international Purim, is coming up shortly in a couple of weeks. So I wanted to uh, let the listeners know that there's really more than one Purim. In fact, there was a book put out several years ago that lists all the Purims. I haven't been able to get a copy, but I understand it, it runs in, runs into the hundreds when either individuals or communities were saved from disaster. So uh, it's a nice thing when there are Purims. It means that God, God helped us out when we needed it. Now, I want to go on to another subject uh, because uh, I got an email from one of my listeners who says that uh, he likes very much when I do what I call under the radar. I bring up topics you don't hear. If you watch, uh, listen to radio or television or internet, there are a lot of things you don't hear about that are of interest. And I call them uh, under the radar, but I think they're things that, the, that it's good for the, my listeners to know. And I'll give you a couple of couple of them. For example, uh, I saw an article that the country Ukraine has an appointed a prisons rabbi, believe it or not, a rabbi for the prisons. An Israeli-Ukrainian rabbi is making history in Ukraine, becoming the first to be appointed as the official rabbi of the country's 171 prisons. There are 171 prisons in Ukraine. It's a country which, by the way, is under in war now. The rabbi's name is Jonathan Markovich. He's the rabbi of Kiev, uh, which I think is the capital. And he's the Chabad emissary there. And he'll be responsible for the religious services in all the prisons throughout Ukraine and will provide religious services for Jewish prisoners. The... Uh, it's very interesting. By the way, you know, there are things, for example, people who are, you know, in normal course of life, a lot of things you don't think about. For example, there is certain mitzvot, certain requirements, commandments that Jews have to keep. And sometimes Jews are in hospitals 
or in prison, and someone has to provide them with the utensils or the services needed to keep the laws. So I know, for example, in America, and particularly in New York and here in Israel, there are people who go around uh, to the hospitals. They provide Sabbath meals, Shabbat meals. They provide someone who says Kiddush, who says sanctification over the wine. There are people who go to the prisons uh, to provide the reading of the Megillah on Purim, or making a Seder on the eve of Passover. As a matter of fact, I'm reminded something rather interesting. The, the, the ones, the one organizations that particularly involved in providing these services is the Chabad Lubavitch uh, uh, organization. And I remember uh, when I first came to Israel, I lived for a short period of time in the Chabad community in the city of Lud. And right near Lud, there's a big major prison in Israel called the Ramla prison. Now that prison has a special uh, section for white collar prisoners. In other words, these these people aren't bandits or murderers. They're people generally involved in financial skullduggery and they get sent to prison. But they were, but they have the same need for religious services. So uh, <coughs> the son of one of my friends at that time, he was a kid, 17 years old, and he was sent by the Lubavitch authorities to provide a Pesach Seder, a Passover Seder, for the white-collar prisoners uh, in the Ramla prison, which was right nearby. So it was really funny. After the holiday was over, uh, and, and he had he had met, uh, organized a Passover Seder for the uh, white-collar prisoners, so I asked him, uh, how was it, you know, having a, a Seder in a prison? And he said, I'll tell you the truth. I was in company that I would never, uh, in my normal life, I would never be involved in a Seder with them. He said, who, would, who was there at the Seder that I organized? There were bank managers and the heads of major companies and all kind of fancy lawyers. All these people who were put into prison for various uh, economic crimes, but they had to have the services for Passover. And he said, and, I, and me, a 17-year-old kid, was the one who provided these services to all these fancy people. So that's very interesting. It's a requirement, and the Hasidim of Lubavitch take very seriously that we must see to it that all Jews, regardless of their position in life, even if they're in prison, have to have the minimal amount of religious services that are required by a Jew. The fact that someone is a criminal, has been arrested and put into jail, doesn't mean anything. The requirements as a Jew are still upon him, and the Lubavitch organization throughout the world they have something like uh, 4,000 emissaries all around the world who provide these services for Jews, and that's really a wonderful thing. I have eaten Shabbat meals in various places like Russia and Ukraine and Vermont in the United States, provided by the Lubavitcher Hasidim, who seek to it that every Jew has an opportunity to keep Jewish law. 
I'll be back after the break. Howdy, Bruce Brill here from Nokdim, Israel, in Judea, the homeland of the Jews, and I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Israel is now going through a crisis, an internal crisis, probably the worst in its history. It has to do with a bill being being brought up in the Knesset to change the way the Supreme Court and the judges are chosen. It's very difficult to go into all the details for the listeners because it's a little bit complicated. The only thing I can say is background is that over a period of about 20 to 30 years, the heads of the Supreme Court have taken on powers way beyond there were before. The Supreme Court was born, it is really one of the branches of government, has assumed all kind of powers, particularly about doing away with laws, that it never had before, and in most uh, democratic countries, there is no such power. For example, one of the ways they they, uh, nullify a law is to say that in the eyes of the judges, it's not reasonable. What does reasonable mean? What does it mean that in the eyes of the judges, it's not reasonable? So these are the things that have upset many people over a period of years, and the new government is trying to change the way the the, uh, Supreme Court and High Court uh, judges are chosen. Interestingly enough, back in 2013, the United States Senate changed the rules of the game the, they were stymied by what the Democratic senators called unprecedented obstruction by Republicans. So Harry Reid from Utah, who is the senator, he was the majority leader at the time, held a landmark vote to approve the most fundamental change to Senate rules, the most fundamental change that had taken place in over a generation. Simply put, the Senate would no longer need a supermajority of three-fifths, that is 60 votes, to break a filibuster. You used to need 60 votes in the Senate of 100 senators. You needed 60 votes to break a filibuster. From that day on, in 1913, all that would be needed is a simple majority. That's it big difference. And what was being obstructed that the Democrats were so passionate about unblocking the subject under discussion was judicial appointments, which is exactly the same subject which is causing all this unrest in Israel. By the way, there were hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating, not only on the weekend, not only on Saturday night, but during the week against 
the changes that the new the government is trying to bring about and how justices are chosen. It's a story worth thinking about after President Joe Biden issued a rare statement last week about the ongoing debate in Israel over the coalition's plan to change, to reform the way judges are chosen. The American president made a statement about it. In, in a sense, he interfered with something that's totally local and domestic to Israel. And Secretary of State Anthony Blinken um, said that uh, the uh, genius of American democracy and Israeli democracy is that that building consensus for fundamental changes is really important to ensure that the people buy into them so they can be sustained. No, that is very rare because it's the first known time that a United States president weighed in on an internal Israeli political dispute that has to do with the nature of the balance between the country's branches of government. Beyond being rare, it was also interesting coming from Biden. Back in 2013, when the Democrats voted to change the filibuster, he was the vice president and as such the president of the Senate. He was aware of the way his party was changing the rules. Then he didn't seem to have a problem with it being done without a consensus. And now he's interfering and in speaking about what's happening in Israel. Now, obviously, the American president has the right to speak out anything he wants. Uh, after all, the foundations for the relations between the U.S. and uh, Israel are shared democratic values. If he feels that those are under threat, maybe he should say something. All that can be asked, though, is a bit of proportion. It's doubtful that in 2013, he or anyone else in the Obama administration at that time would have appreciated a foreign head of state interfering in Senate procedures and calling for a broad consensus, which is exactly what the Democrats eliminated when they changed the filibuster. I'm sure nobody in the United States, not particularly not in the Senate, wanted to hear the opinion of a foreign country. And speaking about proportion, that's exactly what's missing from the entire debate about judicial reforms. Now, on the right, you have Justice Minister, whose name is Yariv Levin, and, and there's a committee called the Law Committee Chair Committee, and the chairman is a guy named Simcha Ross from the National Religious Party. So the Justice Minister and the head of the Law Committee are steamrolling ahead with disregard to the other side. And in the opposition, they wanted dialogue, but when they were offered to create a dialogue, they turned it down. The President of Israel stepped in and did something that the presidents generally don't do, here in Israel, he got involved in a national debate, and he suggested that the opposing sides come to his uh, to the president's house and discuss these things together. 
But the, um, the one group said no, which really was a mistake. When the offer was made to meet, the legislation was anyhow not moving forward for another week. They could have met with the, the two sides, could have met, decided you know, what were the compromise, but they said flat out no. They showed that what they're really concerned about is losing the momentum gained from the massive protests in Jerusalem during the week. The problem is that for there to be proportion, people need to realize that both sides have legitimate concerns. That's what happens in a democracy. On the left, there is a genuine fear that these reforms move ahead and will spell the end of what they consider democracy, and Israel will really lose by this. So maybe their concern is legitimate. Because some of the moves being made, and there are a lot of details involved, and some of the moves being made are extreme. I don't want to go into the details, but there are some that are really acceptable, some are extreme, and they have to be toned down. But on the other hand, there's a genuine feeling of disenfranchisement by a substantial number of Israelis. That includes right-wingers, Haredim, the ultra-religious, and the Mizrahim, the Jews who come from the Oriental countries or North Africa, who feel that the court does not protect their rights or represent, the, represent their sectors in society. For example, what happened during the 2005 disengagement from the Gaza, Gaza Strip was a real trauma for some of the people that has not healed. I remember that. I remember I was during the last, the last days of the Gaza Strip when the army came and moved people out of their homes. The, uh, in addition, the fact that over the years, there have 72 uh, judges in the Supreme Court, and only 11 of them are come from what they call Mizrahi, from North Africa, from Iraq and Iran. All the others are what we call Ashkenazim. Altogether, this gives people a feeling that the court doesn't represent them. When people on the left warn that if the political class receives authority to appoint judges, it will undermine their trust in the court. They should talk to some of their right-wing and religious friends. Many of them lost trust 20 years ago when they were kicked out of Gaza. People can yell that this is a meaningless, that there's just because some people feel distressed doesn't mean that the judicial system should be changed. But that's wrong. If you want to reach a compromise, first understand what is troubling the other side. You have to listen to the people that you don't disagree with. Hundreds of thousands of people have gone into the streets to protest, particularly in Tel Aviv in Jerusalem. Last Saturday night, I came home from being away for the weekend. I couldn't get anywhere near my house. The police had closed off the entire area because the protesters were filling up the streets outside the, of the home of the prime minister. Now, that's impressive. 
the likes of which have not been seen for decades. They came from all walks of life from across our nation, waving Israeli flags and chanting pro-democracy slogans. There was little doubt that they, that they support democracy, but here is something that isn't clear. If these peoples are such supporters of democracy and democratic values, how can they support the continued existence of the Judicial Appointment Committee? Why do I say this? For a sim very simple reason, one I think the, the listeners can understand. The Judicial Appointment Committee is made up nine members, two ministers, two members of Knesset, one from the opposition, two members of the Bar Association, and three sitting Supreme Court justices. Under existing law, seven members are needed to approve the appointment so of, of any of a further for uh, to prove the appointment of a justice to the Supreme Court. Now keep in mind that of this committee, this committee, the uh, three are Supreme Court justices, which will vote obviously as a block. So if you need seven members are needed to approve appoint and a, a justice then the three justices on the committee can vote as a block and veto anybody they don't want beside which two members of the bar association are people who are going to appear before these justices in cases that they're involved in. So they are obviously afraid of crossing the Supreme Court justices. Be before even getting into the question of whether it makes sense that judges appoint judges, would we want one prime minister to appoint the next? Has anyone ever seen a transcript from the appointments committee? It's all done in secret. Has anyone ever been able to sit in a hearing or watch what happens? Or like we can watch a Knesset committee? Do journalists get to report from the committee hearings and understand how the decisions are made? Unfortunately, the answer is no. There is no openness whatsoever in how Supreme Court justices are appointed. How is a process that has zero openness, zero transparency, and zero accountability, how can that be called democratic? Now, then there's the argument that some people may, according to which the political class is not qualified to select judges and politicians are unethical and do not have legal experience. Without getting into any specific people, the, the, the argument is confusing. The people elect our legislators and they are our representatives in the Knesset. We elect them and trust them to make decisions about going to war or attacking our enemies or lowering or increasing taxes, dividing up our state budget and everything. 
Suddenly, do we draw the line when it comes to the appointment of judges that we, the people, have no say? Now, another subject that's one that I think is really the basic one, it's the so-called reasonability, which is the justification for why the court decided, to example, to bar someone from uh, serving as a minister, the... Uh, the, the, for example, they uh, they said that the chairman of the Shas party, Ayyadari, could not serve as a minister. But let, let's be clear, it was the state on Israel that Dari was appointed in the first place. He's a two-time convicted criminal, should have no place in our Knesset or our government. Netanyahu never should have allowed him to be a minister. Nevertheless, once he ran at the head of a party that was voted into Knesset, that party that he ran the head of got 400,000 votes. And he was appointed a minister and approved in the Knesset. So how can the court come and decide that doing so was unreasonable? If the people decided they wanted a, an ex-con to represent them in the Knesset, that's their right. With all due respect to the judges, there were 400,000 people who felt it was reasonable, and and uh, another 64 members of Knesset who raised their hand in approval of the appointment. The question we have to ask ourselves, are 10 judges more reasonable than 400,000 voters? Is that democratic? That's the problem. That's the basic issue here. What is really the definition of democracy here in Israel? Is it something that only a few people can make decisions, or means, the, or is the power in the hands of the people, whether you like what they choose or not. There should be some way to restore some nuance and proportion to the conversation now. Instead, what we have are two sides bent on not seeing the Israeli people win by reaching a compromise, but rather on fighting for a victory that will help advance their own political interests. And while the judicial reforms are what pushed throngs of people to take to the streets, what is troubling them is less how our judges will be appointed, but rather what else will become the moment the changes come along. Almost everyone agrees that judicial reforms are needed. Question is, what kind? What the people out on the streets fear is that this is just the beginning, and that after far-reaching judicial reforms, it will give the Knesset new powers. With checks and balances out of the way, what will prevent all of this harm to our civil rights? That's what this is really all about, civil rights. Will there be a way to protect civil rights after these reforms are instituted? That is the democracy that people are worried about losing, and these concerns cannot be ignored. The government needs to take them into consideration and needs to address the fears that are pushing hundreds of thousands of people to the streets on a weekly basis. The president, Isaac Herzog, put forth a compromise that could be accepted on both sides. And there are other out ideas from all kinds of legal experts. The sides need, the various sides need to meet, to talk, negotiate, and find common ground. 
we have only one Israel, only one Jewish country, and only one Supreme Court in Jerusalem. Yet to put aside the politics and do what the people want, and to do so, you must find a compromise. Also, I'd like to be able to get to my home on time when I come back after a weekend away, when the streets are all filled of, uh, of protesters, and uh, I have a personal interest in the protest stopping, so I don't have to walk blocks to get to my home. Uh, on a Saturday night because of the demonstrators. Anyhow, I hope I've been able to clarify a little bit without going into the details of what this big struggle is all about. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Uh, I got an email uh, a few days ago from a listener who said that he likes what I do, uh, what I call under the radar, I find items of interest about Israel, about the Jewish world, that you don't find in the newspapers or in other uh, radio or television programs. They're really under the radar, but they're of interest because they provide color of what's happening around the world in the Jewish community. So I've chosen a few for this week, and I'll start off with um, an item about the oldest Hebrew Bible copy, which is going to be auctioned off in May. The oldest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible, as we know it today, is about to go on sale, and it could well become the most expensive book ever sold. It was written by a, a single Jewish scribe, on 400 pages of parchment about 1,100 years ago. It's called the Codex Sassoon, and it's estimated to, to fetch between 30 and $50 million when it's sold by Sotheby's Auction House this May. Before then, the book is embarking on a worldwide tour that includes stops in London and Tel Aviv and a few other cities. Those who see this uh, Bible will be laying eyes on one of only two known ancient manuscripts comprising almost the entire Hebrew Bible. There's another one called the Aleppo Codex, which is incomplete after hundreds of pages went missing in the 20th century. Now that the Codex has been definitely dated as the earliest, most critical text of its kind, it stands as a critical link from the ancient Hebrew oral tradition to the modern accepted form of Hebrew Bible that is the standard today. The Codex Sassoon is named after the book collector named David Solomon Sassoon, 
who acquired it in 1929 for 300 British pounds, the equivalent of about $28,000 today, and and resurfaced it, it after about uh, 600 uh, years. And uh, interesting, I, as I said, it's going to be sold between 30 and 50 million dollars. Now, Sassoon, who owned the book, added his book plate to the inside cover of the binding, extending a century-long string of inscriptions detailing the book's Jewish ownership, much of it throughout what is now Syria. The record does not show what happened between the time when the synagogue where it had been was destroyed and Sassoon's acquaintance. But for the last century, it's been in private collections. In contrast to other books near the um, which are owned by major museums and on display, what remains of the Aleppo Codex can be viewed at the Israel Museum here in Jerusalem, while later but more complete copies on display in Russia. The book's latest owner is someone named Jackie Safra, part of the. Um, uh, the very rich Jewish banking family who paid for carbon dating to put the age of the book at about 1,100 years. The book was briefly displayed at the British Museum in 1982. Now, the truth of the matter is that its value won't be determined until after the auction in May. But Sotheby's, the auction house, said that they believed that the final price could be atop the, the uh, $43.2 million that the CEO of a hedge fund paid in 2021 for a first edition copy of the U.S. Constitution that was also sold by the same hot, uh, Sotheby's house. Uh, its value obviously goes beyond the page. Codex Sassoon marks a critical turning point in how we perceive the history of the divine word across the years. The, it's a transformative witness to how the Hebrew Bible has influenced the pillars of civilization and culture and law and politics for centuries. So this book is going up for sale and it's somewhere between 30 50 million dollars. If I find out in May who bought it, I'll report it to the listeners. Now I want to say a few words about civil disobedience. And the reason this subject comes to mind is because uh, we live in Jerusalem, not far away from the prime minister's residence, a little bit further away from the Knesset, Israel's Congress. And for the last uh, several weeks, there were all kinds of uh, demonstrations in the streets. The, uh, I think I may have mentioned previously we came home from a weekend and we couldn't even get near our house. The police had uh, blocked off the entire area because we live not far away from the prime minister's personal residence. And people were out by the thousands carrying Israeli flags and all kinds of signs. So I want to say a few words about the uh, banality of uh, civil disobedience. From, and I'm not an expert, but I have some thoughts. From a behavior, behavioral perspective, democratic countries try to maintain their legitimacy among all their citizens, and not just among the political supporters, because they know that in the end, 
with any other uh, use of government power, the state would not enjoy the same level of cooperation uh, from the public. So you have to please the public. Um, research in this area reveals consistently that the state's enforcement mechanisms cannot win the full support of a public. It feels that the government's actions, especially with regard to criticism of its power, is illegitimate. Once a, uh, a population feels that the government's acts, uh, actions are illegitimate, that is a very severe problem. The, the state can effectively enforce all kinds of laws, like speed limits. Uh, it can do this by putting cameras along the roads. But it will be hard-pressed to deal with many other traffic offenses that are, not, that are no less dangerous. The state can collect income tax payments that employers, the employers direct, uh, deduct directly from the workers' salary. But the governments of laws when attempting to deal with the rampant tax evasion associated with the kind of cash economy, particularly here in Israel, where people uh, buy and sell things with, in cash, so there's no record. So let's talk about the protection of the environment, for example. The state wishes to enlist its citizens' cooperation to fight against climate change or can't can succeed. Uh, it only can do coercive measures. Without citizens' willingness to cooperate, it's extremely difficult to force people to change how they get from place to place and whether they use cars or, or you know, instruments that uh, foul up the air. In a sense, uh, the... Uh, Recently, they had a, uh, a tax on uh, disposable utensils, and the, in a sense, the repeal of the tax on disposable utensils as a result of resistance by the ultra-Orthodox is an indicator of the fact that in order to win citizens' voluntary compliance, the state needed to make the tax legitimate by explaining, explaining the problems that, that, that disposal causes. A tremendous number of people, especially in areas like B'nai Brock, have a lot of kids, and therefore they don't—they uh, buy a lot of um, throwaway dishes, disposable utensils, and then they put a tax on it, and then the people rose up against it. The uh, so you have if you maybe if you explain the problem that's caused by disposables, maybe people will go along with it. And you look at COVID, for example, we've been suffering from it for two years, uh, which may not be totally behind us. We're still suffering. It taught us a lesson as to the extent to which the government depends on voluntary public co cooperation. You have to depend on public cooperation. Now, apparently, from the stuff I've read, various studies have found a correlation between political identification with a country's leader and the vaccination rate, and between the relations between the opposition and the coalition, and public compliance with pandemic regulations. For example, at the height of the pandemic, police enforcement focused on less dangerous locations, like open spaces, and was totally ineffective when it came to the mass contagion spread in closed spaces. And in the Israeli context, perhaps the most salient example is that of military service. 
There's compulsory service and there's reserve duty. In the end, despite all the legal options and powers available to the state, many of those subject to conscription and even more so to reserve duty evaded. And the military is also not anchors to taking individuals who show up only because they're forced to do so. The, uh, and that's especially true in uh, units that demand personal sacrifice. So it's important to understand that in the final analysis, coercive regulations and coercive enforcement, especially in democratic countries, have a more limited reach than governments are prepared to admit. So, a go- for example, a coalition in a government must consider what works best in its favor. Uh, the, uh, for example, and that, that's the problem we're having now. The, the government, the coalition that forms the government is looking for a hands-down victory, a unilateral reform of the entire package, or perhaps they can go about making changes by sections, by consensus. Those who care about the good of the country perceive the great advantage of partial reform achieved by consensus, which as a result enjoys greater legitimacy in the eyes of the public. The big problem we're having now is the government is trying to enforce changes to do away with other changes that were made over a period of years. For example, the Supreme Court in Israel has gathered to itself a tremendous amount of power, much more than in other democratic countries, but it was done slowly. It was done over a period of 25 to 30 years. It was hardly noticeable. And now the new government is trying to make away with these changes in one fell swoop. So... Uh, there could be all kind of disruptive forms of civil dif- disobedience, like blocking roads. So most people won't do that. They won't block roads. The uh, the enforcement agencies can identify. No, it is the banal civil disobedience manifested in a gradual decline in public cooperation on various matters that are essential for our society to function, in which the powers that be would find harder to change and, and, and identify. With the cooperation by the public at large, with the country's laws, and in dealing with its challenges, can be achieved only by safeguarding the government's legitimacy. This is especially the case on issues which go to the very heart of democratic democratic legitimacy, like the government's willingness to recognize the limits of its power and the supremacy of the law. Refraining from exploiting power and working toward consensus would help prevent the collapse of the public's cooperation and its goodwill in addressing the challenges that confront Israeli society. In other words, the bottom line is you cannot make change too rapidly. That is uh, an interesting problem because the changes that were made by the Supreme Court, getting it more power, took place over a long period of time to the point it was hardly noticed some of the basic laws uh, that we uh, have here in Israel were passed by very small majorities. 
not just small majorities, but a small number of uh, people voting in the Knesset. They sort of were done quietly over a period, period of time, and all these uh, quiet moves eventually added up to giving the Supreme Court more power than Supreme Courts have in other lands. Now, the government suddenly woke up, the new government, and said, wow, these guys have too much power. Let's get rid of it in one fell swoop. That ain't going to work. I'll, I'll summarize this and bring it to a close by quoting a letter uh, which I wrote to the Jerusalem Post, and it was published in the Post on Monday, February 20th. And I wrote the following. Um, the, a, uh, a guy by name Yoni Dayan had uh, written an article on February 14th stating that he would not serve in the Israeli army if he's opposed to government policy. So I wrote the following, and I, I stand behind what I wrote. I have difficulty understanding why the Jerusalem Post published an article by Yoni Dayan stating that he would not serve in the Israeli army if he is opposed to a government policy. A policy, by the way, which has not yet been voted into law, and he calls upon others to join him in not serving in the army. And I wrote, and I quote, I came on Aliyah in 1969. I served in the Israeli army, including during the Yom Kippur War, under a labor government whose policies I disagreed with almost totally. The ability to serve and defend the Jewish state that arose after almost 2,000 years of an often difficult diaspora is a privilege and an honor that befell our generation. To avoid it because of a temporary political situation is a serious mistake in judgment. We have the only Jewish country that came into existence after almost 2,000 years. And to say I will not serve in the army and defend the country because I don't agree with the particular policy of a particular government is simply a terrible mistake. We are going through a real, a real rough time now in Israel. Uh, here in Jerusalem, we really feel it because the streets are filled with demonstrators uh, lot, many times during the week, but primarily on uh, the end of the Sabbath, on Saturday night, where I can't even get to my own home because uh, the streets are crowded and with uh, demonstrators against the government and the police, of course, are, are directing the crowds. So this, this is what a democracy is all about. The people certainly have a right to uh, get up and, and protest against a government policy. That's why they have elections. In this most recent election, the parties to the right of center won the majority. Now, I can't say anything about the religious parties because uh, my own feeling is they'll join either the right or the left as long as they can get things that are good for the people who voted for them. But that's a story unto itself. Right now, here in Israel, we have a government that was duly elected it wants to push through uh, certain laws. Uh, my feeling is that they're trying to push through these laws too quickly to make up for a series of laws that were passed over the last 20 or 30 years more gradually. And that is the problem we have. 
It's as if the people in the right wing have suddenly gained power and they don't really know how to use it. And they're afraid probably in the next election they'll be kicked out of power, so they have to get all they can now while they are in power. And that's a terrible mistake. You have to, in a democracy, things have to move slowly so that the, the public can digest the changes. Otherwise, you're running into trouble. It's been proven historically in many countries, and I would hate to see Israel go down the path of violence in the streets. There are those who are talking about The mayor of Tel Aviv, for example, made a comment, uh, not just a comment, he spoke at a rally saying there'll be violence if, uh, if the laws change. That is simply the wrong thing to say in the democracy. It's interesting. Democracy comes from two words, meaning the power in the hands of the people. And that's true. But when the power, even when the power is in the hands of the people, the leaders of the people have to know how to use that power properly and particularly gradually. So that's the kind of, that's the situation we're in right now. I'll be back after a break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I want to say a few more words about an issue which is extremely serious in Israel today. One of the most important issues that have come up since the founding of the state. There is currently a battle over proposals to reform the Supreme Court and the judicial system. And it's had unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, laid bare the stress lines in Israeli society. On one hand, there are the prospective reformers led by Justice Minister Yariv Levin of the Likud Party and member of Knesset Simcha Rothman of the Religious Zionist Party. He chairs the Knesset's Constitution, Law and Justice Committee. These two men have come forward with detailed plans and proposals for addressing long-standing abuses of power and discretion by both the Supreme Court and the Attorney General's office. In other words, there is room and need for some change. Right now, the Supreme Court holds a lot more power than the legislative branch of the government. So these two men who are pushing for the change have been inviting debate, they've been inviting discussion, and they have shown that they are interested in compromise. Now, against them, and against any proposal or idea of change, the group that is opposed to this change have been largely leaderless amalgam of leftist opposition, politicians, and their allies in the media and academia, culture and high tech. The message that the opposition to the changes have been alarmist, evoking the idea 
that if these changes are made, it will be the end of democracy. So far, there has been no attempt nor desire to engage with the proposals to address the obvious practices, such as the veto that justices have on the selection committee, uh, the, uh, the choice of new judges, no, or to accord any empathy or understanding to the anger and estrangement that underlies the drive for reform. Instead, at this moment, there has only been the threat of the ruination of Israeli society if any reforms are undertaken. In other words, the government, this new government, which is a right-of-center government, wishes to make reforms in a judicial system that will take away some of the excess power that the judicial system has at the moment. And the opposition to these changes doesn't want to speak, sit down and, and compromise. There's been no attempt to engage in compromise. Now, these lopsided and very different approaches to the subject make it rather clear that for the opposition, this is about power and the fearful prospect of a loss thereof of their power. Despite its control of the median, academia, culture, and much of high tech, the left wing in Israel, the opposition to the government, wants apparently as many levers of power as possible and understands that they have largely lost their their prospect for total power and dominance. So I'm, uh, I appreciate the fact that the listeners don't know all the details of the proposed legislation, which passed its first reading in the Knesset this week. But the, the point of the new uh, legislation is to reduce some of the excessive power that the Supreme Court has. That's the bottom line. And the, the, the Supreme Court undoubtedly is left-leaning, left-leaning, and it's accumulated powers that can only be balanced by a Knesset. But realistically, the judiciary in Israel is arguably the most powerful branch of the government. It appears that the left knows this and wants to keep things the way they are. The, it's interesting. Someone brought up the other day that uh, one of the articles, several articles in the newspaper, that they're talking about violence in the streets. A tremendous number of, uh, of uh, thousands upon thousands of people have gone into the streets to oppose the change. And I'm pretty sure most people don't really know the details of the perspective change. Now, but bloodshed is a concept that's been bandied about by the officers and leaders, and there have been personal threats made to Prime Minister Netanyahu. And so somebody pointed out that, the, the, uh, that there is a homegrown model for the confrontation uh, one that produced some of the most shameful and some of the most admirable conduct ever witnessed in the, in Israel. What is this model that, that, that's a, a throwback to what's happening now? 
is a saga of what the ship called the Altalena, which arrived on the, off the coast of Israel in June 1948, a, a month after the state came into being. What had happened is that the ship had been commissioned by the Irgun Fighting Force, which was led by Menachem Begin, which was fighting in parallel, but not under the orders of the newly organized Israel Defense Forces. This ship that they brought contained a substantial amount of much-needed weaponry and ammunition. Just to remind the listeners, back when the State of Israel came into being, there were two fighting forces. One was the Irgun, led by Menachem Begin, and the other was the Israeli Defense Forces, led by Ben-Gurion. So the Irgun brought in a, a weapon, a, a ship called the Altalena. That was the name of the ship. It had been loaded with munitions uh, in France and had arrived in the coast of Israel uh, a month later. Now, there were negotiations and an agreement between Begin and Ben-Gurion that 20% of the arms would be allocated to the Irgun's Jerusalem Battalion. So the crux of this agreement had to do with the demand by David Ben-Gurion that the IDF be a unified force under his command, and there should be no other fighting forces to oppose the invading Arab armies. Up to that point, there were several, as I mentioned a moment ago, there were two Jewish fighting forces. One became the uh, IDF, and the other was still the Irgun under Begin. No fearing that the remainder of the arms on the ship might be used to supply an army within the army, Ben-Gurion gave an ultimatum of 10 minutes during duration that the arms and the ship be surrendered or that the ship would be fired upon. And that is indeed what happened. Though several uh, members of the Israel Defense Force refused to order to, the order to shoot at a ship because there were Jews on board the ship. Now Begin, who had been watching the standoff and the firing from the beach toward the ship, had taken by boat and under fire to the ship. Despite the ongoing fire, commanded on a beach by no one less than Yitzhak Rabin, Begin ordered that the fire not be returned. He commanded the people on the ship not to return the fire. Years later, Begin said, my greatest accomplishment was not retaliating and causing civil war. While he was intensely involved in directing the Irgun, Begin understood that there were larger and more powerful issues at stake, most especially unity. In contrast to the my way or sink the ship approach of Ben-Gurion, Begin refrained from the fight. The, it's not a major stretch to see the parallels between that painful incident in Israel's history and the current struggle. The leftist opposition to change 
that has no compromise position, no talks uh, or any way out of the situation, despite, despite evoking the specter of democracy, what they're doing is profoundly undemocratic. They simply refuse to compromise. The interesting enough, the reforms are being pushed through by in the Knesset. Essentially, reflect the will of the democratically elected majority, and the left seems to not take this into account. Instead, the issue is all about control and the larger implications of the potential impact on society. By contrast, Levin and Rothman, who are pushing for this new bill, have been tripping over themselves, emphasizing the focus on the largest welfare, and they have urged discussion and compromise. Now, this reasonable big picture approach, which is, makes sense, has been echoed by none other than President Isaac Herzog himself, a former prominent politician, Labor Party leader, who has risen to place the welfare of society as his highest concern. He has both validated the justification of the reform proposal and has called for discussions and compromise, which is very statesmanship-like. Now, people have said by trying to compromise, He's more like Neville Chamberlain, and and he's being condemned for surrendering to the opposition. The, there's a profound need, no doubt, to address the almost 30-year revolution of the Supreme Court that has brought us to the current crisis. Over the last 30 years, the, the Supreme Court in Israel has taken to, it, to itself powers far above the powers held by the legislature. Those seeking redress have one eye on the substance of their proposals to achieve that, and the other on the larger society in order to make sure there is no Pyrrhic victory, no battle won, the war lost. However, at this moment, the opposition to the change does not have the same feeling about larger society. It just wants to prevail. These starkly different attitudes should, should in and of themselves shine a bright light on the need for, and the wisdom of reform. What essentially is happening, as I said before, and I want to make it to simplify it for the listeners, the, the proposed reforms the bill which had passed its first reading in the Knesset, it requires three readings, is to cut down the power of the Supreme Court and the judicial branch of the government, which at the moment has more power, which has accrued to itself over the last 30 years, so that it is much more powerful than the other branches of the government. And this is what the reform is all about. That's the bottom line, without going into the details. So the question we ask ourselves 
is, after weeks of massive protests and overheated rhetoric, where does the country go from here? The passage of the two bills on the first reading is not an irreversible moment, but is a significant one. You have to have three readings. You have to pass three readings in the Knesset for a law to become law. There is still plenty of time and space for compromise before the bills pass the third and fourth readings and go to the president to be signed into law. But in order for this to happen, in order for compromise to happen, there needs to be goodwill. And up to now, neither side has been willing to show that goodwill. Each side is instead intent on all-out victory. The sadness in all this is that if one side insists on all-out victory, the other side will lose. And the other side, in this case, is not the enemy. The other side is our brothers. They are left. They are our brothers. The other side is those who fight side by side in the army, who celebrate together, who mourn as one. Why would brothers want to see total victory over one another? Yet until now, that has been the mindset in the judicial reform saga, total victory or nothing. And what's needed now is change the mindset. What is needed are two things that President Isaac uh, Hertz alluded to. He said, magnanimity in the victory and humility in defeat. First, regarding magnanimity in victory, Unfortunately, in recent domestic Israeli politics history, it has not exactly been the country's byword. Rather than magnanimity in victory, seeing the concerns and fears and frustrations of the other side and taking them into account, the last 30 years in Israel have been marked by the opposite, intoxication with victory and the belief that to the victor go all the spoils, that it's win or lose. There's no compromise. But uh, give you give you an idea. Back in the early 90s, Yitzhak Rabin uh, eked out a narrow coalition and then pushed through the Oslo Accords despite the fears of half the country that did not support it. Ariel Sharon showed no magnanimity when he pushed through the withdrawal from Gaza despite fierce protests of a good part of the country back in 2005. This country's politicians are not known for magnanimity. There is no doubt that judicial reform will be passed because the government has enough votes to do so but they must show magnanimity and make some kind of a gesture, even freezing the process for a short period to get the other side into a dialogue. As our President Herzog said, the onus is on the coalition, the government, as the more powerful party to make the first move toward compromises. It's interesting, by the way, somebody pointed out one of the reasons Abraham Lincoln has gone down as such a great U.S. president 
is because the trait he demonstrated throughout his political career, career was magnanimity. He was magnanimous toward political rivals. He brought them into his cabinet and magnanimity toward the defeated Southern Confederacy, allowing the Confederate soldiers to retain their dignity and go home with their arms. Lincoln realized, as one scholar noted a few years ago, that a good leader, as a good leader, Lincoln knew that it's going to be easier to bring the country back together if you were open-hearted and magnanimous and generous. Lincoln realized being harsh and spiteful to the South was not going to do anybody any good. Unfortunately, Lincoln was assassinated and his followers didn't have, have his spirit. They wanted to press the South because they had lost and we are till today living with the unfortunate results of that. Israel, thank God, is not reeling from a civil war, but it is at the moment badly split and the, the message is timely. The split nation now serves no one interest except those of the country's enemy. To mend the split, generous political actions right now by the powerful side, by the coalition that has the powers to bulldoze who whatever it wants, it must stop for a moment and compromise. The, so far, there have been no signs of this, of what's needed. Hopefully, the winning party, the coalition under Netanyahu, will be open-hearted, listen to the opposition, make compromises, and bring an end to the most serious crisis Israel has faced and since the, the perhaps since the very founding of the state. I realize that a lot of listeners may not know all the details of the law being pushed. Essentially, as I said a moment ago, the idea of the new law is to reduce the outlies, the outside strength that the Supreme Court has. So maybe not everything that the, uh, this bill has could, should be passed, there should be compromise. We are living in a state that's only a little over 70 years old, and we have to re re behave, particularly our politicians, have to behave with responsibility. We have only one Jewish state. It came into existence almost 2,000 years of a difficult exile, and we can't blow it by not being generous in victory. Until next time, Jay Shapiro signing. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? 
At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candlelighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 